Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome back to Mid-Atlantic. As you've probably heard me say before, uh, Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a network of great independently produced podcasts from all over the world. Uh, Each month we nominate a show specifically to promote, and this month is Dominic Perry's excellent The History of Egypt podcast. Um, Why don't you go over to the Agora Podcast Network or to iTunes or Stitcher or a podcatcher of your choice today to give it a listen. If you really want to build a more equal, just and sustainable Britain, then we have to do things differently. We can't stand by while ordinary ordinary people are locked out of politics. And we can't wait for progressive parties to get their act together. We have to win together. We have to win together. The kind of change we need comes when we realise our power. We're organising a force for change with ordinary people at its heart where the progressive movement will find the energy to lead us into the future. Developing leaders, transforming neighbourhoods, disrupting politics from the ground up. We'll equip them with the skills to build power. From the estate to the ballot box, we'll back people to win. We'll back our leaders to win. To lead us into the future. We can can win. win. We can win. We can win. Please contact us and join our campaign at wecanwin.co.uk. We can win. We can win. We can win. Hello and welcome to Pin Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today I'm joined by Conservative blogger Niall Gooch, who describes himself as an Englishman born a century too late. He's an amateur poet and a writer of unfinished novels. Hello, Niall. Hello. Eight months ago, a majority of voters opted to leave the European Union. I believe then, as I do now, that was an historic mistake. And I've watched with growing concern as the British people have been led to expect a future that seems to be unreal and over-optimistic. Over the years ahead, the political price of leaving the European Union may turn out to be greater than the economic cost. Some of the most committed Brexit supporters wish to have a clean break. This would not be a panacea. For the UK, it would be the worst possible outcome. It has worrying implications for public services such as the National Health Service. We live in uh, tumultuous times, uh, exciting times historically. Um, John Major has said that Brexit is a historic mistake. Now, 
we we on the left we're used to a certain amount of infighting over brexit and should we go along with the small majority of uh, britons that wanted to exit but i thought all you right wingers were all behind brexit so was john major right is brexit a historic mistake now i'm inclined to think that he might he might be right i mean if you'd asked me this question a year ago maybe a bit more than a year ago i'd probably have said I disagree with him very strongly. You know, for a long time, I thought, uh, you know, I, I would vote for Brexit, you know, up to maybe the beginning of last year. Um, but I think by the time I got we got round to the referendum, I was actually a pretty uh, I'd made my mind up pretty securely that I was going to vote to remain. So, I mean, I've, I've had a bit of a change of heart. And I, I think there are quite a lot of people who I would say are my friends who are on, you know, on the right of politics, who are conservatives like me, who've sort of had a similar kind of. Uh, maybe an, an epiphany and a, a, a change the view they might once have had. I know a few people who I'd say are sort of... You know, let, okay, on, let, let, let's go back a step. Why were you up until 18 months ago last year? Why were why would you have been a Brexiteer? I suppose it's the maybe what you call the typical kind of reasons why people, you know, didn't want us to be in the European Union. So I thought, you know, it's I've got big reservations about some of the decisions that came down from the European Court of Human Rights. I think that, or, or did think that, you know, a lot of the interference from uh, kind of Brussels and the centre of the European Union was was unnecessary and bureaucratic and that kind of stuff. I also had... Could you give us one one instance, what one thing which you went, you know what, that that's wrong, that's trampling over British sovereignty? Well, I suppose in terms of the European Court of Human Rights, a lot of example I would think of would be something like um, the ruling that said prisoners had a right to access pornography. That's an example that came down the pike a few years ago, and that just struck me as an obviously ridiculous ruling from the Mm. European Court of Human Rights. And I think just the, the general kind of way in which human rights law coming down from Brussels seemed to me to sort of pick a side in quite a lot of discussions that I'd have said were for, were for democratic deliberation, really, and that should have been decided at Westminster. Um, but that's one. Votes for prisoners was another one. Again, I'm, I'm not sure of my final view on votes for prisoners, but I think if we're going to change the regulations on votes for prisoners, it should be a decision that we make in the Houses of Parliament. And I, I still think that, but I think that on balance, we need to remain in the European Union. Of course, the European Court of Human Rights is a separate institution from the European Union, but it, it's, it's also sort of intermingled with it. Mm-hmm. So you had a fairly, let's say, standard view that, a right-wing view, in terms of British politics anyway, that you were at best a Eurosceptic, really you wanted to exit, but I think probably like just about everybody else, you didn't think it was going to happen in, in, in your lifetime. You know, UKIP was a somewhat of a fringe party, and would, would that be a fair summation of where you were up until about a year ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't expecting... Uh, I certainly wasn't expecting us to vote for Brexit. I thought there would be quite a big victory for remain you know five to ten percentage points maybe even more Mm. um and i continued thinking that um right up until quite near the referendum to be honest so then what made you start to travel in the opposite direction from the rest of the uk do you reckon well i suppose there were a few things really one of them was the the irish question i suppose you'd call it um i've got a very good friend of mine who lives in dublin um, he's very. He's a historian by training, and he's uh, he's very kind of up in politics. And he started saying a lot of things to me about how Brexit might affect the Republic of Ireland, or how it might affect the peace process in Northern Ireland, how it would you know, kind of upset the delicate balance that's we've created in Northern Ireland in the last twenty years in terms of the peace process, how a lot of the so the aspects of the peace process in Northern Ireland are dependent on both the Republic of Ireland and the UK being part of the European Union. And there's a danger in unpicking that, that we go back to the bad old days in Northern Ireland. And 
there's also the question of what we do with the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because if we leave the European Union, that will be now a, uh, it will have to be there will have to be a hard border somewhere, because otherwise, if we just keep the traditional open border we've had the, with the Republic of Ireland for a very long time, that's effectively an open border with the rest of the European Union, and so completely undoes the point of us leaving the European Union supposedly to halt free movement. So does that mean that then the British border has to be extended to Irish ports or airports? So we have British customs officials at Cork and Dublin airports, or do we have to make the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK a hard border? But then that creates big problems for British citizens who are Northern Ireland residents. And so, yeah, that was a big thing for me because I'm, I'm half Irish. I have, I love Ireland. I go there quite a lot. And I, I came convinced that the UK leaving would be very bad for Ireland, um, not just in terms of kind of security and border issues, but also economically, um, because Britain is a, in some ways a, a quite a strong link to the European economy for Ireland. There is an effectively an open border between North and South of Ireland now. And having introducing that making that border harder or making it harder to do cross-border trade would affect the economy of the republic and i just think that in general historically we we kind of owe the irish i don't want to sound patronizing but britain has treated ireland very very badly historically and i think this would be another example of us not caring about the irish um so that was one part of it I think as well, just the, the economic warnings about what would happen when we leave the European Union. And I know a lot of uh, Brexiteers are saying, well, you know, we've been we voted to leave and nothing bad has happened economically. But, you know, we, we haven't left yet. We're not we're only at the very beginning of the process. Do you, a lot of do you, think, of, do you think those money markets and speculators are still actually thinking, number one, we might not leave. Hence, the markets haven't tanked or at least number two, even though the Prime Minister is talking about hard Brexit, it's going to be the softest of hard Brexit. So hence, we're still going to have a lot of economic uh, bilateral trade ties to Europe. So hence, uh, the markets have maintained where they are. Yeah, I mean, I I, I struggle with economics, so I, I wouldn't like to say anything too clear, uh, definitively, but I think there's probably something to that, which is that the markets and, and business are still assuming that they can make it work you know, however Brexit goes and they, you know, they perhaps they feel that, you know, there is going to be a soft Brexit, despite all the rhetoric that's coming down the coming down from Brussels and from London and from the various European capitals. I mean, I, I do think, though, that it's still a bit of a wait and see thing. I do have concerns about the economy and particularly in the medium to long term. I've got friends who know a lot more about economics than I do, whose judgment I trust. And the point they make is it's not that we're immediately going to get poorer. It's that gradually over the sort of medium to long term, we get richer much more slowly than other countries. Mm. So it's, you know, at the end of the 2020s, we'll be noticing, you know, that growth in Britain is slower than it is in, say, most parts of the Eurozone. So, as I say, I don't know a lot about economics. I, I find it difficult to have any kind of firm opinions about these things. But there did seem to be an economic consensus that leaving the European Union would be bad for us economically. And I thought, well, I have a bit of a problem with so people like me, so basically quite well-off, middle-class white guys. It's all very well for us to talk about kind of the abstract principles of sovereignty and freedom for the UK and doing our own thing. But I was increasingly thinking, well, what does that actually mean for people who really depend on the economy doing well? So people who are in kind of precarious employment, people who are in businesses that you know might go to the wall from the economic fallout from Brexit. So although there's this kind of meme that, oh, yeah, it's these liberal elites who are just ignoring the will of the people. Well, actually, in a sense, it's not the liberal elites who are going to lose that if Brexit goes wrong. It's not me. It's not, you know, people in conservative think tanks. It's not my right wing friends who can look after themselves. And if you look at photos of Brexit celebration parties, I don't usually go in for kind of identity politics stuff, but there's a lot of well-off white guys there, you know, and it's 
that's the thing that really struck me and I had to think about, well, am I going to just vote to leave the European Union for my own satisfaction? What's the economic consequences of that for people who aren't as well placed as me to weather a, an economic storm or a, another downturn? You, that- you, you raise an interesting point about the optics of people who were celebrating Brexit, overtly celebrating anyway. It almost feels to me anyway that the vote to Brexit is the last hurrah of the British Empire. That, that in, in terms of people that have a nostalgia for it. Um, accident, I read an article, I forget where, if it was the, the Telegraph or somewhere, very small article saying that Nigel Farage um, wants to extend a special status to the United States uh, as an associate member of, of the Commonwealth and that when he, when he visited Trump, Trump said, yeah, it sounds like, like, like a decent idea. You know, the, 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 the whole optics of the world just seem to be turned kind of up, upside down for me and in terms of um, the historical trends and drifts of what we've had in this kind of post-1945 uh, world. But anyway, that that's just me just, like, you know, just reading this thing kind of, you know, in, in credulity. Um, what, what has Brexit meant to you in terms of your understanding of, of British politics since that vote on June 23rd? That's an in, uh, interesting question. I think to, to me it kind of it's always difficult to, to not see these things just through the prism of what you already thought was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me it's a big cliche and it's what everyone says, but I think it, there is probably quite a lot of truth to it, which is that there is a, there's a growing disconnection, I think, between um, people who've benefited from kind of openness and globalization and the kind of modern liberal society. And I use the word liberal in the broadest sense, you know, economic liberalism yeah. and of people and sort of cultural exchange and that kind of thing. And I think what we're seeing maybe is a move from the, the big divide in politics being fundamentally about sort of economics to going towards uh, a place where maybe the cultural divides are the most important things. Back in sort of the early 20th century, we had a distinction that was basically about the interests of working people and social improvement and reform of conditions and pay and getting long holidays, all that kind of really basic economic stuff versus the interests of business and the middle classes and the landed gentry. I mean, that's a very crude way of putting it. But that uh, sort of basic conflict in politics has been breaking down ever since really sort of the 60s and 70s when you started to have the end of mass industrial employment in the UK. And it's been a very long, slow process. But in a sense now, I don't think that the Labour-Conservative distinction makes as much sense as it once did. Again, this isn't a very original thought, but it's, it's true that what you've got now is a divide that's about culture and about attitudes to what you might call loosely liberalism, understood as you know, economic liberalism, free movement, open borders, cultural exchange, it's bit, all sorts of kind of terms have been used for it, but you know, globalism versus parochialism or, you know, nationalism versus internationalism. But I think we're in the middle of moving from that old political dividing line, if you like, to the new one of culture. Yes, the British people voted to leave Europe, and I agree the will of the people should prevail. I accept right now there is no widespread appetite to rethink But the people voted without knowledge of the terms of Brexit. As these terms become clear, it is their right to change their mind. Our mission is to persuade them to do so. What was unfortunately only dim in our sight before the referendum is now in plain sight. The road we're going down is not simply hard Brexit. It is now Brexit at any cost. Our challenge is to expose relentlessly what that cost is 
to show how the decision was based on imperfect knowledge, which will now become informed knowledge, to calculate in easy to understand ways how proceeding will cause real damage to our country, and to build support for finding a way out from the present rush over the cliff's edge. Let's fast forward, let's say, 10 years. Where would that leave the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party, the Liberal Democrats, sorry, the Labour Party, and where would that leave the United Kingdom? Let's say, because we've, we've exited from, from, uh, from the European Union. Let's take that as a given. That's just going to happen. We don't know how hard it's going to be, but we, we've exited. But with this new um, alignment of political thought or political allegiance, where does that leave the major UK parties? I think I can certainly see the Liberal Democrats in some form becoming the party of uh, sort of openness, globalisation, cosmopolitan party, whatever you want to call them. But I certainly suspect that there'll be, whether it's a rejuvenated Labour Party or whether it's the Liberal Democrats or whether it's a breakaway part of the Conservatives, depending on what happens to the Labour Party, there will be a strong grouping of British politics that is kind of internationalist, socially liberal, economically liberal, um, you know, kind of relaxed on things like immigration and all the other kind of social stuff that goes with that. And then there will be a a party that is much more traditionalist uh, or, or nationalist on those issues. Or hopefully not nationalist because I don't like nationalism, but a, a party that is more or less consciously against globalism and more in favour of, you know, looking after our own and the, the nation state. And, you know, I don't want to be too cruel about that way of looking at the world because I've got a lot of sympathy with it, but a more an insular view of, of politics as being focused on, you know, people here and the demands of Britain. So they might be more protectionist in industry and economics, for example. All right. So you, you're a student of history, uh, as am I. So you are saying to me that in 10 years' time, these alt-right nationalistic forces which have been sweeping the western world some some parts of the western world you know you can read a lot of reports and you think that it's everywhere it's it's not quite everywhere you know it's not in canada new zealand for argument's sake so we've got to be careful that we don't say it's everywhere it's definitely not, and it's not really in spain as well for all of the fast, recent fascist history of somewhere like spain it, it's not there and it's definitely not in portugal so but you're seriously telling me that you can see it in 10 years time that they will still be embedded within the fabric of UK and on Western politics that some like the phenomenon of Donald Trump isn't just an aberration. You, 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 you seriously believe that? Yeah, I, I'd like to think that Trump is an aberration, but I'm, I mean, this is what, again, one of the reasons why I changed my mind about Brexit is I do think there is, in certain Western countries, something stirring that isn't particularly nice. Uh, that's awful way of putting it, not very nice. But I, I think there are forces around, if you look at France and the Front National, polling very, very well. I don't think Marine Le Pen is going to be elected French president, but she's going to score very, very well in the first round, almost certainly. If you look at something like um, Allianz for Deutschland in Germany, and obviously Trump in the US, I'm, I'm worried about that kind of politics with a slightly nasty populist edge. I mean, I don't, I don't think this is the beginning. It's, it's not the 1930s. I, I wouldn't go that far. But I think, although, again, I'm sympathetic to conservatism and to, to patriotism and to, you know, the nation state, even I feel that there's a bit of a hard-edged nationalism around I think the European Union is a good way to keep a lid on that, which is one of the reasons why I changed my mind. And I don't, I don't. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think it's going to go away. That's my concern, yeah. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. I mean, I was eight years old, interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in, um, in a classroom for a year. And... Awesome. Yeah. Um, for me... I well, and I think the reason that I somehow managed to to win in the end is that for me it's about an economy of the three things that bring a song together. Catch up with me speaking to friends and interesting people every Friday afternoon on Friday Fifteen, which you can get, of course, from a podcatcher of your choice. Hello, I'm Lucy, and this is Walkie Talkie. I walk my dog, Basil, uh, pretty much every day in a foresty bit of London. Um, I have been doing so for about four years, and I meet people that, as a dog walker, you talk to people. Um, If your dogs get on, you tend to just, you say, which way are you going, can I come with you? and you just sort of amble along and you can end up having the most extraordinary conversations. Partly because uh, you are walking side by side and facing front, so there's no embarrassing eye contact. If things get a bit heavy, if someone starts talking about something that they find emotional or difficult, then you can always divert your attention onto the dogs and relieve the tension a little bit. We've seen, as a group of dog walkers, we've seen um, people get pregnant, have children. We've seen people whose dogs have become ill and died and the owner says, oh, I can never have another one. And then in a couple of months time, they appear with a puppy and everyone's delighted to see them. And um, we've seen people's marriages break down, new romances start. It's a lovely way to start your morning. It never fails to give me something something nice to think about, something interesting to think about, even if it's not nice. And having a dog is a sort of a, a universality, really. The people aren't all like me, as I 
hope you'll realise over the course of the series. Leading up to the 1860 election, in walks a gentleman by the name of Abraham Lincoln, who is the Republican candidate. The Republicans to the South re represent the ending of slavery. And Lincoln, despite the fact that his sentiment was always in the beginning to preserve the Union rather than to abolish slavery, becomes the lightning rod of anti-Southern sentiment. And he ends up winning the election in 1860 with no support from the South. The Guardian, Manchester, Tuesday, November 20th, 1860. Summary of news, foreign. The details respecting the presidential election furnished by the New York journalist, not complete, but they not only assure us of Mr. Lincoln's election, but show that the Republican Party has obtained far more than the requisite number of votes for his return. It is calculated that New York, Pennsylvania, the New England states, New Jersey, and the Northwestern states give him 171 electoral votes, or 19 more than the majority required for the election, the total number of electoral votes being 303. It is not improbable, too, that this majority may be further swelled by the result of the elections in the Pacific states of Oregon and California. We have no account of the manner in which the Southerners have received the intelligence of Mr. Lincoln's election. The next advices will no doubt be filled with fierce Southern declamations and protest, but it is not very likely that any Southern states will do anything mere than talk loudly about succession. Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes from Washington to Obama. 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Brown. Obviously, um, we're now in March 2017, and to fight the battles of June 23rd, 2016, it's kind of pointless, but we should at least try and learn the lessons uh, from, from that kind of historic defeat. But, but simply, why do you think that Britain exited from at least Britain's voted to exit from the European Union, just put simply. Very simply, I would say it's to do with the fact that a lot of people uh, felt uh, alienated from and ignored by what you might call mainstream politics. And I think that had been a problem that had been building for many decades. I, I would say that a lot of people wanted to give the political classes a kick and they saw the European Union referendum maybe as a as a free hit in the way that they would see by-elections or Euro elections as a free hit. That's why UKIP do so well at Euro elections but never get MPs at general elections because people treat European elections as a chance to kick against the pricks, as it were. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the basic reason that we, we voted for Brexit is that a lot of people are um, angry about the political elites and I think some of the reasons for that anger are good reasons and I kind of share them and I think some of those reasons are not very good reasons but I think that's the basic cause. Why would somebody like you be angry at political elites because from where I sit you're part you are part of the elite you know <laughs> Um, and it's interesting you started off our conversation by saying, you know, you're a white guy, you've got a relatively comfortable job, decent income, etc., etc. Um, I'm very proud to call myself English as opposed to British, but I'm an ethnic minority. Um, I'm visibly not part of the elite, though... Some people might class me because I am an international liberal uh, in the broadest possible sense as part of a liberal elite. But in terms of capital, 
in terms of uh, basic things like job security, in terms of history of people that are like me. I'm very much not part of the elite. So I'm always interested to hear a white middle class male, which has all that invested privilege, say that, you know, there is a political elite of which they're not part of. It's one of the reasons why I find Nigel Farage a totally fascinating figure, because if anybody's part of the political and economic elite, it's him. But he but he rails against it all the time. I mean, I suppose I wouldn't say I was necessarily angry. I think that would be the wrong word for me. I I think it's more that I I think there have been lots of things that have done. Lots of mistakes have been made in the last uh, 40, 50 years that I think have been quite serious mistakes. So, I mean, I, but I, I wouldn't say personally I was angry and I don't, I'm always a bit reluctant for the reasons you've outlined to say that I'm in some way I, a victim. I, I don't like people who aren't victims kind of claiming the mantle of victimhood. I can't, like, you know, when you hear people say, oh, we wouldn't be allowed a white police association as completely ignoring the context of like historical racism and discrimination against minorities. Well, there's an obvious reason why you wouldn't be allowed a white police association. It's, it's a stupid question. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm always reluctant to say, yeah, I'm a victim or I'm angry because I don't think I am a victim. I don't think I'm angry, but I, it's more that I can understand why people feel angry or feel really alienated and, and annoyed at things that the way life in Britain has developed. Um, and as I say, I, I think often that anger or annoyance or whatever you want to call it is misplaced. But as I say, I'm, I, I definitely wouldn't want to claim that anger for myself. I mean, in some ways I am, like you say, I'm part of the metropolitan liberal elite. You know, I, I like going to the ballet. You know, I like foreign language films. I work in the public sector. You know, I read poetry for pleasure. I don't like Donald Trump. You know, I, <laughs> in a lot of ways to a lot of people, I would seem like a, you know, elite liberal. Um, if they talked to me for a while, they'd soon find out that I probably wasn't, um, not a liberal um, anyway. But um, yeah, so I wouldn't say I was angry, but I, I can understand people who think that Britain's gone very wrong in serious ways in the last 40 or 50 years. I must make clear that in accepting the mandate to negotiate our withdrawal from the United, from the European Union, I do not accept that the mandate runs for all time and in all circumstances. 48% of our people rejected that concept last year. They have the same right to be heard as I hope we recognised so many of us in those long years of opposition in another place. The rear guard for remaining in the European Union seems to be fought by politicians of yesteryear. So we've got Tony Blair um, resurfacing, John Major, who delivered, I think, one of the best political speeches in the UK in uh, just about forever. And even Michael Heseltine, uh, good old Tarzan's kind of been, you know, swung, swung into action. What does that say about re- uh, more relevant uh, politicians now that are definitely pro remain the fact that we've had to dredge up politicians of a uh, vintage of 10 20 years actually to try and at least make the case for maybe even a second referendum or at the very least that the commons has a a proper say in the scrutiny of the deal that Theresa may comes back with what does it say about our current generation of of politicians that's a very interesting question. I mean, there's a, a nervousness among them about challenging, challenging a, a majority view, because you know we talk about um, being very keen on democracy, but actually, democracy isn't just a show of hands. It's about um, you know checks and balances and the rule of law and uh, protecting minority opinions and you know careful deliberation. So, a certain amount of timidity among politicians of I suppose I'd say the left or probably more accurately sort of the liberals, because you've got quite a lot of liberal Tories who are uh, not very keen at all on Brexit. I mean, I suppose you have there have been people making the case for another referendum who are a bit more uh, in touch. But I think you're right that. I I think people feel cowed by 
this idea that the people have spoken, the majority have spoken, and you know it's it's time for the politicians to just do what they're told. But actually, if you look at the numbers on the vote, it wasn't this overwhelming victory that has been claimed since. It was 51.9% to 48.1%. Uh, you know, if 600,000 people had voted differently, Remain would have won. You know, it's, it's, it's a few percentage points in it. So I don't really understand why politicians are so reluctant to say something like, do you know what? Um, you know, we, we had this vote. Um, I don't think the Brexit's going to be good for the country in the long run. It was a very close vote. I think we should take that vote into account, but also we should, that should be the start of a conversation, not the end of a conversation. And I think, yeah, it would be great to hear more politicians saying that, but I think they're cowed by this sense that democracy just means doing what you're told. And I think the sort of the crisis in the Labour Party at the moment hasn't helped at all mm. because the Labour leadership is more or less ceasing to function as an opposition. Um, and you've got a lot of... I, you think, just... I think you're being polite, sir, saying ceasing. I think it's ceased. <laughs> I think you got your tenses wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> Are the politicians being cowed by a sense of the people speaking or is it the right wing press? Is it the daily males of this world that they're much more scared of? I think there's something to that, certainly. Um, you know, I do think we have quite an unusual press in this country. I mean, in some ways, it, it's a good thing because it shows that we've got a kind of a long, robust commitment to uh, newspapers being rude to politicians which i generally quite approve of but i think as well that has a downside which is as you say that i think maybe it's easy for politicians to get a mistaken sense of where public opinion's at now obviously you know public opinion on june the 23rd was 51.9 percent to 48.1 in favor of leaving but i think probably reading the you know sun daily mail you could be forgiven for thinking it was a much broader mandate and a much bigger margin of victory just because those papers they are appealing to a certain part of the, the population that's you know newspapers have to appeal to their readers particularly now and i think that's that's an interesting kind of phenomenon we have of i don't think it's a, a very good phenomenon which is that media publications are increasingly targeting their kind of core rather than reaching out so it's now in the, you know, the mail or the sun's economic interest is to get as much uh, attention as they can from their kind of core rather than having a, maybe a more moderate um, approach to things. They want to really grab people who already agree with them. Um, and I think that that's worth, that's a pressure that's across all media in the online times. You need the incentives provided by kind of uh, social media are to massage the prejudices of people who basically already agree with you. Mm. And I think the printed press are experiencing that as well. So, yeah, I think basically politicians are maybe feeling a pressure that isn't quite as strong as they might think it is from the papers. What's going to happen at the next general election in the UK? Just before we start to wrap this up, I know I've kind of jumped around a little bit with my questions. I asked you about 10 minutes ago to say what's going to happen in 10 years' time. Um and and that was a somewhat of a foolish and definitely an unfair question uh, anyway because politics just <laughs> so volatile but let's just cast our minds forward to uh 2020 um which means we should have just about brexited i think let's say that we have um which party's going to going to romp to power well i can't see anyone apart from the Conservatives winning, to be honest. I mean, Labour are in disarray. The Lib Dems are... The Lib Dems might increase their vote. They might pick up some, again, some of Liberal votes and small-L Liberals. But I, I think it's going to be a pretty handy victory for the Tories, unless... I mean, the only thing I can think... If there's a really bad economic downturn before the next general election which can be plausibly attributed to Brexit, that might affect the Tory vote. But equally, uh, you know, Brexit, Brexiteers could simply say, 
there's always a way around it. They could say, well, this would have happened even if we hadn't left the European Union. I don't think it'll be very difficult to convince, to argue against that view that uh, that everything will be seen to vindicate Brexit. So even if there's a recession, well, it would have been even worse if we were in the European Union or whatever. I think it'll be hard to argue against it. But I think the only thing that will dent a conservative, big conservative victory in 2020 is a serious economic downturn. The fundamental strengths of our union and the benefits it brings to all of its constituent parts are clear. But we all know that the SNP will never stop twisting the truth and distorting reality in their effort to denigrate our United Kingdom and further their obsession of independence. It is their single purpose in political life. And we need to be equally determined to ensure that the truth about our United Kingdom is heard loudly and clearly. As As Britain leaves the European Union and we forge a new role for ourselves in the world, the strength and stability of our union will become ever more important. We must take this opportunity to bring our United Kingdom closer together. And then what next for the United Kingdom? Do we have, if the, if the Conservatives get in at the next election, do we have, five years hence from that, a recognisable unit we might still call the United Kingdom, which still has England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, considering the issues around the Irish border, the SNP up in Scotland. Well, that's the... And, 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 yeah. and, and let me add a little supplemental to that. Why isn't the fracturing of the United Kingdom important to the Conservative and Unionist Party in England? I think that the cynical view of that would be that the Tory vote is very heavily concentrated in England. Um, but but those Tory um, grandees, the really old Tory grandees, are very proud of the title of, of the party. It is a Conservative and Unionist party. Admittedly, a, an MP that got his wings, so to speak, in the Thatcherite years, grew up thinking that the Tory party began begins and ends with Margaret Thatcher, wouldn't necessarily have that view. But there are many still old Tories of which, um, let's say, Ken Clark would be one of them, for argument's sake. Admittedly, you know, he's old, I did say old Tories, that do believe in, in the union. And I suppose from somebody who, again, and I've, I've said it earlier on, I'm a student of history, I'm just surprised that there aren't many more Tories, Tory grandees, that just like, hold on a minute, the very title of this party is going to become redundant if we're not careful. Doesn't mean that Scott, that the tail needs to wag the dog, that Scotland needs to tell England what to do. But we need to be careful. We need to have, you need to be careful of that, you know, the sensibilities of, of the Celtic fringe. It surprises me too. I, I mean, I, I would say there's always been a quite a strong feeling in England particularly to maybe towards the Irish, but also a bit towards the Scots, that they are a sort of a, an appendage to, to England rather than being sort of joint members of the Union in their own right. Um, I think it, it, but just the electoral maths for the Tories um, work, works very well if you know, England is even more dominant than in the country than it would be if, as, at the moment. If the Scots left, um, you know, England would represent a vast percentage of the sort of, the votes in, in the remainder of the UK. So, I, mean, I, I don't know why the Tories are so little interested in what happens to Northern Ireland and Scotland. It's sad to me because I I'm a unionist myself. I Certainly for Scotland, it's a bit more complicated for Ireland. I found when we had the Scottish referendum a few years ago, I was surprised by how kind of passionately I, I felt that I wanted the Scots to stay. I didn't think I cared until about a month beforehand. You know what? No, I, I was exactly the same. I was exactly the same. You know, I just thought, well, let, let them go do whatever they want to do. And then literally three weeks before, and I got incredibly... Um, nostalgic about the fact there might not be a Union Jack anymore and you know and many people on on my political side of the fence will say 
again, you being an ethnic minority and the fact that that flag has been a symbol of um, oppression, how can you think that? But that's not the way I view it. It's my flag too. And and I just thought, what, why, why cleave away one of the most successful, arguably the most successful uh, political national union in the last 500 years of, uh, of world, definitely European history? Because, yeah, I, because what divides us is actually little and arguably quite, quite meaningless. You know, the very fact that you can have the last but one prime minister be a Scot and he's not a foreigner. No, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And the fact that David Cameron's surname was Cameron means he's got Scottish roots. It just doesn't matter. That's actually one of the things that I, I felt quite strongly was that the, the UK is a, is a sort of a symbol in, in the world where sort of things are... They've got a lot of, sort of not ethnic tensions, but kind of national in Europe, particularly, we've got a lot of little nationalist movements emerging. And I think the success of the union is a sort of a rebuke to those kind of little nationalisms. And says, actually, no, this kind of multinational country can work and mm-hmm. it can work well to the benefit of most people living here. And it's really interesting what you were saying about your feelings about the union, Jack. I, I haven't got the research to hand, but. I think it was there's a think tank called British Future. I don't know whether you follow um, Sunder Katwala on Twitter. No, but I think I need to. Yeah, he's really interesting. He's uh, I think his um, his family are from the Indian Sikhs originally, but um, but he's he's really interesting. But they had this research that suggested that a lot of um, kind of British ethnic minorities actually preferred to identify with Britishness. Mm. rather than with Englishness, which they felt was more tied up with... Ethnicity. ...of a racialized yeah. identity, yeah. whereas British was a more inclusive. I can obviously, you know, I'm white, so I don't want to speak for them, but I, I can understand why people would, would feel that way. I was taught that as well, that uh, growing up in Birmingham in the 1970s and 80s, I was told I was British and uh, and I was I was black. And, and then you look at census, how census data is collated. And uh, if you are non-white, you're always called British. You know, that's how you uh, identify, uh, you know, your inclusion as being a, a British subject slash citizen. Um, and I think it's been really interesting for me. And we are sl- sl- slightly going off uh, the, the the core subject matter here but it's interesting for me in to watch the slow rise of english nationalism uh from the early 1990s primarily through football where you had the re-emergence of the flag of saint george because you never had that we're watching the english football team it was always the union jack whereas scotland always had the saltair uh the welsh flag was always you know the dragon of wales england always um performed played under the union jack and i always think that the sense of englishness is complicated one because of britishness and because it's such a big part of britain but for many english people not for all englishness is actually inclusive of ethnic minorities in a way that um and i've kind of written about this um quite quite a few times but, you know, on, on a very palpable level, you'll watch something like X Factor. And if there's an ethnic minority singer, they're always English. They're never Scottish, never Welsh, ne- never Northern Irish. Though there is Shirley Bassey and there is Hardip Singh Coley. So there are ethnic minorities in other bits of the country. But 95% of all ethnic, all ethnic minorities in Britain live in England. And there are concentrations of them. And I would say a metropolitan view of England, of Englishness, does include Sikhs and does include uh, Hindus in Leicester, does include um, Afro-Caribbean people in Birmingham. But those, and then those areas where that inclusive level of Englishness is kind of understood and accepted actually are remain areas of the United Kingdom, with the exception of Birmingham. And there's reasons why Birmingham voted narrowly to, to, to leave, though... Um, is literally at the tipping point becoming a majority minority in terms of its ethnic participation. And then it's those very much whiter areas of the United Kingdom that um, are, sorry, of England, which are a little bit uh, 
poorer that have a much more old-fashioned traditional view of England that England fundamentally is is just white and is slightly um, worried I was going to say xenophobic that'd be unfair is worried about immigration and worried about identity and, and change though ostensibly around the European vote this was Eastern European immigration I mean I wonder sometimes whether opposition to sort of free movement within the EU is a sort of uh, for some people it's a kind of placeholder for expressing sort of concerns about immigration which are a bit darker maybe about about sort of ethnic change you know because most kind of uh, people from elsewhere in the EU aren't visibly ethnic minorities so I wonder whether there is a sort of a vague sense where in which people the kind of people you're talking about there who have concerns about kind of national and ethnic identity latch onto skepticism about socially acceptable form of immigration skepticism Mm. so it's very difficult to say you don't want non-white immigration into the country it's a bit more acceptable to say we need to end free movement within the eu so I wonder whether people are a bit kind of mixed it, up there. But anyway, that's, that's off, off topic of it, I think. No, no, but, but, but I think it, it gets to the point of one of the reasons why the United Kingdom, or let's say England and Wales, uh, decide, decided to Brexit. Because I, I think at its heart, the case for Remain can't be pithily summed up. It isn't a case of, you know, regain our, our sovereignty. You know, you can, rightly or wrongly, it's much easier to make the case in terms of 140 characters why, on an emotional level, why why you sh- you'd want to leave. Make Britain great again, you know, to mix my political uh, monkeys, you know. <laughs> you know, whereas let's just keep things as they are. It <laughs> doesn't have the same emotional punch. Though keeping things as they are has been a bulwark against war, and economic turbulence since since 1945 and I, and I say to say this to people all the time that actually what's happened here is that people have got so used to security military and relative economic security that they've bec- that actually a lot of people become complacent and yeah. and that's ultimately re- really what's happened here is this the 1930s I don't think so either but it does eerily feel like, um, you know, the late 1920s anyway, with uh, an impending kind of economic crash or one's just happened, you know, kind of looming. And then uh, politicians playing on, on people's fears and saying, I'll be strong, I'll, I'll look after you. But Niall Gooch, you know what? It's taken me about three years of being on Twitter to actually have a conversation with you. And I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, me too. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great. Um, you're an old fogey, uh, but you've done half right a decent blog. So why don't you tell people where they can find your blog and tell us a little bit about it. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's just called nilethinksandwrites.blogspot.com. And it's just, I mean, it started off as an outlet for kind of poetry and bits of short stories. But more recently, I've been putting the very occasional kind of I suppose political blog posts up there you'd say I mean they're kind of political in the broad sense but I'm I'm a lot more interested really in kind of cultural issues and sort of the world outside politics and the way that influences politics more and how we talk about politics as well as just kind of you know the yabu sucks stuff um, so yeah I, I'd like to think that I'm reasonably thoughtful in how I approach it and i hope it's interesting to people who don't necessarily agree with me but can kind of get a sense of where I'm coming from and where people who think like me kind of traditional-ish conservatives are coming from fantastic uh, you're also uh, on on twitter because it gives you a twitter handle as well it's just Niall underscore gooch Niall gooch thank you for coming on to mid-atlantic no doubt our pass will cross again soon and uh maybe the next time we'll chat we'll we'll talk about things of more of a, a cultural bent what do you reckon That'd be great. Yeah, definitely.
Hope you enjoyed this very special edition of Mid-Atlantic. We are hoping to get back on our fortnightly schedule in the next week or so uh, with Reggie, John and Alice. Um, So uh, look out for your podcast feeds for that. That has been me, Royfield Brown, in a very sunny San Francisco speaking to Niall Gooch over in Eastbourne. Did you say Niall? Yeah, a very foggy Eastbourne. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow us on on Twitter where we are, Mid-Atlantic Show. Of course, on Twitter, I'm at Royfield. Um, See you all again soon. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.